Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Before we begin today, we have a quick update on the case of Ahmed Zai, the Afghan interpreter we spoke to last week. If you missed the episode, do go back and have a listen. It's one of those stories that stays with you. How are things in Kabul? We cannot leave. We will get killed. And uh, and uh, no hope left. No hope left. Ahmed Zai was being hunted by the Taliban, who'd sentenced him to death for the work he'd done as an interpreter for some of the most senior British officers in Afghanistan. Given the dangers he faced, he was given permission to come to the UK with his family. He was delighted. I got accepted. I took my kids shopping. All my kids were so happy. They bought their shoes, their dresses, and they packed everything. But as the Taliban reached the gates of Kabul, the Home Office revoked his visa. To leave me behind in Kabul, you are just making Taliban to come and kill me. They will just shoot me. And then you will say, oh, he was shot by Taliban, we didn't kill him. But the fact is, you are creating the way to kill me. One of the major generals Ahmed Zai had worked for told us he was ashamed. Good enough to fight with us? Good enough to work with us and die alongside us, potentially, but not good enough to come to the UK. The morning the podcast went live, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, was asked about Ahmed Zai on Times Radio. My heart goes out to him and we're absolutely doing everything we can. It's a joint effort, Home Office, Foreign Office, uh, MOD, to do even more in the weeks and days, days and weeks ahead. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, was also asked about his case. On this specific case, will you be willing as a government to look at his case again, Ahmad Zai? So we're, we're looking at all cases, Stig. Let me tell you this yeah. now. Um, and where there are any questions, I can I can absolutely guarantee you, I've got a team of specialist, specialist people. Believe you me, uh, we are working 24-7. Despite those assurances, it wasn't Britain, but the US, which finally came to the rescue. After an incredibly tense few days, Ahmed Zai and his family finally left Kabul earlier this week. In pictures he sent us, his children are beaming. They look incredibly relieved and finally safe. We'll bring you a full update on them when they get to America. But not everyone has been so lucky. It's not clear how many flights are left the Taliban have stopped people travelling to the airport. 
the window for rescuing Afghans is rapidly closing, and for many, that will mean adjusting to life under the new Taliban. So what do we know about what's being billed as the Taliban 2.0? The most extraordinary thing about the press conference was that the character who spoke has never been seen in public before. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, who are the new Taliban? My name is uh, Catherine Philp, and I am the diplomatic correspondent for The Times. And I've been a foreign correspondent with The Times for the last 21 years. And Catherine, I know you've been trying to get friends out of Kabul in the last few days. How is that going? Uh, It's an incredibly challenging situation. Firstly, we have got people who have been put on evacuation lists, so they have that formal permission to leave and they have a way out. But even in their cases, we're not able to get them inside the airport. The situation right now is very volatile on the ground and the Taliban have control of the streets outside the airport. And the problem is getting people through those Taliban checkpoints safely and then to the part of the airport that is being controlled by the Americans and the Brits. So that's sort of where we're stuck with those people who are actually lucky enough to have the necessary documents to leave. I mean, the Taliban have in their public pronouncements said that they don't intend to to go on a a revenge-killing spree. We assure the people of Kabul that there will be no excesses against them and they will live in peace. People clearly don't believe that and the desperation they're showing to, mm. to get away. I mean, what are, you, what are you hearing? Very simply, they don't believe them. They think that as soon as the foreigners have left, then the Taliban will revert to type and what they know of them going back more than 20 years. Part of the problem about trusting what the Taliban are saying is that it doesn't jive with what's happening on the ground. The fact that we actually have the Taliban preventing people from reaching the airport, even though they are saying they're going to let them go. We have a UN threat assessment report that has documented that the Taliban have already got lists of people who worked for the government and for the military, and that they compiled them before going into each city that they took from the government, the last one being Kabul. And they have been going around door to door looking for some of these people already. There have been reports of atrocities, interference with women's rights, that kind of thing in places outside Kabul. Obviously, it's very difficult to tell whether that is a question of indiscipline in the Taliban ranks or whether it's something that has got higher up clearance. But I think that we're seeing this panic amongst people because they think that when the foreigners have gone, they will lose any protection and the Taliban will then do what they want. And the Taliban have been so vague about what their intentions and their policies are, that I think it's, it's you're asking a lot of people to simply trust what they're being told. So on the one hand, they're being quite vague about policies. And on the other, you know, the things that they are saying, we're already seeing a disparity between their words and their actions. I mean, just run us through some of the recent announcements we've heard from them, some of their promises, I suppose mm. they're a bit like a manifesto at the moment, which have sounded quite surprising. 
Mm. So, yes, firstly, there was an announcement that they would give a general amnesty to everyone who worked with foreign troops, NATO troops, or with the government, and that there would be no attempts at revenge. Now, obviously, that policy, as stated, is contradicted by what we know of them collecting names and documenting where all these people are and going looking for them. Mm. We've heard from interpreters on the ground saying they're going door to door. That's correct, yes. And they've actually, I mean, some people who have actually fled before the Taliban have arrived there, they've got some sort of tip off that they they are being looked for. I mean, obviously, some of the most high profile people in government didn't wait to hear about the amnesty. And they've actually got out. Whether they are going to go looking for all these people and what they're going to do with them, we just don't know. Afghans have given great sacrifices for the establishment of an Islamic government and they have the right to implement Sharia Islamic government in Afghanistan. We got an extraordinary press conference last week, the first since the Taliban took hold of Kabul and they said that they would guarantee women's rights and that women could work and study within the limits of Sharia law. What assurances can you give to women and girls that their rights will be protected? We recognize the rights of the women which Islam gave them. Women can work, they can work in schools, they can work in hospitals. We assure the world that there will be no excesses against the women and everything will be done under the Islamic laws. Sharia law is a it's something that's very open to interpretation. It's not written mm-hmm. down any, anywhere because lots of countries who have Sharia law practice entirely different versions of it. So what that means, we still don't know. I mean, we did see, and, and it surprised a lot of people, there was a moment where a female journalist on, on Tolo News interviewed a member of the Taliban and that sort of felt like a real moment. <laughs> Is there a sign that that will be the new Afghanistan, or are we already seeing that reverse? I think it's hard to say. Uh, We have heard of instances in which women journalists have been told not to come back to work. I spoke to someone the other day who'd been told not to go to her television station, but her male colleagues were welcomed back. It, It just... It doesn't look monolithic yet. It's very hard to see who's getting these messages and who isn't. Mm. We had women in Kandahar who work in banking who were sent home and told that they would no longer have jobs. We had women in Herat who were students at the university who were also sent home. We're waiting and waiting to hear what's really going to happen in terms of what decisions are going to be made about these kind of things. Can women continue to be on the television or not? And the Taliban have not given any indication that they will make these decisions quickly because they've talked about first there must be a government and later there can be laws. And they've said that those laws will be made by a council of Islamic scholars. Do we have a sense that when they form this government, will it have, you know, sort of secular ministers from the old government in it? Mm. Will it just be Taliban? They are talking about inclusive government. But again, we don't know what that means because they are quite firm on this being an Islamic emirate and an emirate is not a democracy. So if you are a secular figure, you would probably have to make them some big promises about your commitment to 
Islamic law to serve in this government. Uh, let's uh, first uh, look at the Afghan Taliban talks. Uh, Taliban commander and senior leader of the Haqqani Network terrorist group Anas Haqqani has met former Afghan President Hamid Karzai for talks. That's what a Taliban official has said today. We do know that the Taliban are holding talks with Hamid Karzai, who was the president until 2014. Karzai was accompanied by the old government's main peace envoy, Abdullah Abdullah, in this meeting. That's what the Taliban official has said. Abdullah Abdullah, who was the chief negotiator in the talks they've had in Doha. Now, where that actually takes us in terms of whether those people could serve in a future government is not clear. The president, uh, Ashraf Ghani, has fled the country and he was a red line for the Taliban. They would never have accepted him. And do we think if it does have characters like Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah in it, will this new government, I mean, will they be able to temper some of the Taliban surges? Because, you know, a lot of people will remember that Hamid Karzai presided over a government that, for example, you know, legitimised marital rape. I mean, are, are, mm. their, are their views very different? Well, Hamid Karzai actually joined the Taliban when the movement first oh. began in the 1990s. <laughs> Nobody ever mentions that. No one ever mentions that. He, I will give him credit for not hanging around that long. He turned against the Taliban quite early on. And I first met him after 9-11 when he was leading a, a movement of anti-Taliban figures. So he is someone who is able to speak to these people. We know that. He took control quite soon after the Taliban went in 2002. And his government, <laughs> I guess you would say it was better than the one that came after President Ghani's, but it wasn't much loved. And it was seen as corrupt and incompetent almost as Ghani's. For a lot of people, this period will come down to a series of images, I suppose, mm. um, which are, are very graphic depictions of where things might be. Breaking news coming in, and uh, the Taliban have now taken over the Afghan Cricket Board office is what we are given to understand. You can see those visuals coming... I mean, one of them I was quite surprised to see was a picture of a senior member of the Taliban, one of the Haqqanis, meeting the Afghan cricket team. Officials from the Cricket Board had earlier said that cricket should not be a casualty in the wake of drastic political changes. What's going on there? One thing that's profoundly changed about the Taliban over the time that I've been covering Afghanistan and them is that they are just much, much better at PR than they used to be. So mm. I think that they're trying to project a kinder, gentler image, one that forefronts Afghan pride and nationalism, and that would fit in with why they were meeting the cricket team. I think we should be concerned that figures like Haqqani are part of the yeah, I mean, tell us, tell us a bit about the Haqqani family, who seem to be very senior in this, Absolutely. In this Taliban regime. And, and they weren't always Taliban. I mean, they, they, the Haqqanis were based in the Pakistani tribal areas, and they were really well known for kidnapping for ransom. They kidnapped in their time, too, of my good friends and colleagues as journalists. That was an absolutely horrific experience for them. They are very unpleasant and brutal. They also were behind, without question, the worst suicide bombings ever carried out by the Taliban. Another day of carnage on the streets of Kabul. This time the bomb was in an ambulance. 
The Akani Network has gained notoriety in recent years. The death toll is now up to 90 in this morning's massive suicide bombing in Afghanistan's capital city. A huge truck bomb devastated part of Kabul today. It killed at least 90 people and wounded 400 more. They were not considered core Taliban for a long, long time. They were considered a sort of fellow traveler group who were more motivated by criminality um, than extremism. But here we now have, we have a Haqqani as deputy leader of the Taliban. Uh, we have another Haqqani who's, as you say, meeting the cricket team, <laughs> going around holding negotiations. This is concerning. These people are war criminals or terrorists, I think we would consider them as. Most of them have been jailed at some point and were let go by the Trump administration during the course of its negotiations with the Taliban against the wishes of the Kabul government. Does the fact they're turning up and glad-handing the cricket team, does this mean that cricket and music and the arts, will they be allowed mm. to flourish? Famously, they were not under the Taliban. And so when the Taliban talk about that they've learned some lessons and they may have made some mistakes in the past, perhaps these are the kind of things they're talking about. I mean, we've seen video of Taliban who've taken government offices dancing around them. So apparently dancing's OK. Dodgems. Dodgems are apparently OK. <laughs> Dodgems are OK too. <laughs> Yep, that's the sound of an extraordinary clip doing the rounds on social media. Taliban fighters, clad in turbans and still carrying their guns, squeezed into little dodgem cars at an amusement park in Kabul. Clearly delighted. This, it seems, is the Taliban at play. Yeah, I, I mean, some of it is just so utterly bizarre and performative. You want to think, are they just trying to show they have a sense of humour? We've also seen them tweeting images of, you know, again, senior figures going out and, and meeting and shaking hands with minorities. Now, Afghanistan isn't famous for minorities, but it does have, you know, there's Aju in Kabul, there's a small Sikh minority, a small Hindu minority, and they're, they're suddenly being met by the Taliban. Mm. There are several Sikhs and Hindus stuck in a Sikh Gurdwara in Kabul. Well, a Taliban spokesperson has now tweeted this video shot inside that Sikh Gurdwara that suggests that there has been some kind of uh, Taliban outreach. W what does this tell us about where, where they're, they're heading? Well, again, I think it's an attempt to show a different image, but I'm just not convinced by how much it's sticking. And we did see some pictures of Afghan Sikhs boarding an Indian Air Force plane out of the country, carrying some of their holy texts taken from the temples. So clearly there's a lot of people who just aren't prepared to hang around and see if the Taliban have really changed. As you mentioned already, we are getting some reports that things aren't going quite so well on the ground. I mean, tell me about some of the journalists, for example, you know, we heard about DW News, I think. Are scores already being settled? Well, that case is certainly one of them. Yeah, it was a relative of um, a Deutsche Welle journalist was shot dead. It's very early to tell whether this is a systematic campaign mm. or whether it's an isolated incident. It is extremely hard to imagine the Taliban allowing anything like a free press 
at best, they probably have an attitude towards the free press that we would compare to, say, China. Mm. For example, someone from the Taliban Cultural Commission has been in touch with me on Twitter asking if I can help correct the message of the Taliban that's going out to the outside world. And I pointed out that this was not my job. Hang on, is this the equivalent of a Taliban press release you're getting via Twitter? Well, I get Taliban press releases and the like, because they're actually much better at that kind of thing. But no, this was an individual who who thought that I ought to promote his account and we could get the, um, you know, the truth about the Taliban out. Can you correct the message? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I pointed out to him that, of course, it is not my job to help anyone <laughs> in the conflict whatsoever. It's my job to try and find out the truth. So they want us to come on board with their, you know, reinvention and the way that they want to present themselves and, and present themselves differently to 20 years ago. Have they changed? How bad were things 20 years ago when they were last in charge? And who are the people shaping the new Taliban? We'll have more in just a moment. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Talk us through the new Taliban, Taliban 2.0 as it's being called. Mm. What, what do we know about some of the people in charge? Who were the main characters we, we need mm. to, to get to know? Yeah, I mean, one of the <laughs> problems with this is 20 years of covering Afghanistan, it's astounding how little the uh, cast of characters has changed. <laughs> the political leader of the Taliban, who is now in Kabul, beginning discussions with various people, is a guy called Mullah Baradar. And he was the co-founder of the Taliban way back in 1994 with Mullah Omar, who was the late, I suppose, supreme leader, the commander of the faithful, he was called, who died in 2015 in exile. So Mullah Baradar is the, probably the person most likely to become the president of a Taliban government, if that's how they choose to do things. Paint us a little picture of him. What do we need to know about him and his beliefs and what sort of a man is he? Well, the fact that he was a co-founder of the original Taliban. I mean, the, the, yes. that is, he, he, is, he is one of the... Uh, I am not clear on what kind of evolution he's gone through in the last 20 years, I'm afraid. But he was one of the absolute hardcore... He was in jail. The Taliban's top military commander has been arrested in Karachi in a joint operation by Pakistani and US intelligence forces. Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar is said to be one of the top leaders. Until 2018. How did he get out? Well, 
Pakistan has released Baradar from jail. Baradar was released after a high-level delegation. Of- he got out because the Americans had decided they'd had enough of being in Afghanistan and they wanted to negotiate their exit with the Taliban. He was one of those who was released against the wishes of the government in Kabul, but under pressure from the Americans. And it, this is what is so astonishing about some of these people who've who've resurfaced, is that they were all in prison and they got out. So that's Mullah Baradar. Who else do we have in the top team? Yeah, the supreme leader is a guy called Malawi Akunzada. He has the title of Commander of the Faithful, which is the sort of supreme leadership position, which has only ever been held by three people. He would fit in the kind of spiritual leadership role next to and over the political leadership who will take control of the government. And who is the leader of this emirate? Who is the emir? Is it Hibatullah Kunzada, the supreme leader of the Taliban? If yes, then where is he? Nobody knows. There's absolute mystery about this man's whereabouts. In fact, there's only one publicly available image of Akunzada. Then we have Sirajuddin Haqqani. Uh, you'll recognise the name because he's one of the notorious Haqqani network. Sirajuddin Haqqani. Now, he is head of the Haqqani network in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And Haqqani is on the FBI's most wanted list and is believed... He is the son of the founder of the Haqqani network, who is now dead. And he's the deputy leader. He is another one who's been a leading light in this sort of Taliban reinvention. He had a very convincing and beautifully written op-ed in the New York Times last year, just before a deal was struck between the Americans and the Taliban in Doha. Are we guessing there was a ghostwriter? (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing so too. I don't know who it was. But yeah, it was, you know, terribly plausible and Lots of promises about peace and tranquility and good leadership and governance. But again, a very, very difficult and divisive figure, even in Afghanistan. The Haqqanis are responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of Afghans. And who else do we have in that team? Because at Doha, certainly, there seemed to be sort of a younger, more modern face of the Taliban emerging that you know, we'd never really seen before. Yes, there's a, there's a couple of different characters who've, who've popped up recently to sort of do the press relations. It wouldn't be remarkable if it wasn't for the fact that this is a Taliban press conference. 20 years ago, TV was banned here. The most extraordinary thing about the press conference was that the character who spoke has never been seen in public before, even though he's been a spokesman for the Taliban for over a decade. <laughs> So uh, whilst watching it, I was in touch with one of uh, my colleagues, Afghan colleague in Kabul and a Pakistani colleague in Islamabad. And before he'd even appeared on the screen, they both sent me pictures of him that they'd got from somewhere going, do you know who this is? Uh, And they just couldn't believe it because they've been talking to him on the phone for 10 years and they have never seen what he looks like. It's the big Um, reveal. It was the big reveal. And so so really he was sort of stepping out of the shadows for the first time. We have another character sitting next to him who is from what the Taliban call their cultural commission, which I'm still not entirely clear on what their role in all of this is. But he was a fluent English speaker and he's much younger and he's now started to... He gave an interview to Al Jazeera. Well, I don't think people believe we are terrorists. I think it's just... The war on terror 
it was just a, a term coined by, by the United States. And anyone that did not fall in line were labeled terrorists. And this fear or this hysteria that has taken place is unfounded. And you could see, uh, here we are, someone else is stepping forward to, you know, show a fluent English face, a Western-friendly face to the uh, media. And there's another guy who's based in Doha who hasn't shown up yet in Kabul, as far as I can see, called Suhail Shaheen. He is the very sort of fluent, smooth-talking Taliban spokesman who famously popped up for half an hour on the BBC news channel as Kabul was falling last weekend. Regarding the uh, new government, Afghan inclusive Islamic government, I expect it to be announced in very soon, in a few days. So, so in the next uh, few days, we, we we're likely to see Mullah Barada and the Taliban leadership moving to Kabul and, and moving into the presidential palace. Yeah, yeah, I expect that, yeah. Is this a different generation of the Taliban? Sahel Shaheen certainly presents as being a new iteration. But you know, the, the feelings of most Afghan friends of mine is that this is all presentational and they just simply don't believe that Taliban 2.0 is a new iteration. They just think they're better at PR. They got themselves on Al Jazeera, having got into the presidential palace on the night that Ashraf Ghani fled the country. What we're showing you, uh, our viewers now, uh, Rob, is uh, images of the Afghan flag being taken down. That is, Taliban fighters have taken down the flag of Afghanistan. They were conveying an impression, look, we're here in the heart of power, but one of them announced that he'd spent eight years in Guantanamo Bay, and we don't seem to have seen very much of him since. So it may be the Taliban leadership decided that wasn't the message they wanted to give out. We know that Afghanistan has a, a very young population. A lot of people weren't even born when the Taliban were last in power. The ones who do remember it don't seem to cherish the memory. Remind us of what the Taliban were like 20 years ago, because I know you went and met them. Tell us about that. <laughs> so it was after 9-11 and I got to Pakistan and I went down to a city called Quetta. So the first Talib I ever met must have been a day or so after arriving. He wouldn't look at me in the eye. He wouldn't speak to me directly. I had to sit in the car whilst addressing him out of the window, looking straight ahead, wearing sunglasses. And oh, he wow. was looking in the <laughs> opposite direction. Yeah, because he could not, he, you know, he wouldn't obviously shake my hand, but he also wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't sit next to me or any, you know. So he was willing to speak through my translator, but, but absolutely zero contact. My Pakistani colleague had arranged a visa for me to go into Kandahar. This was going to be a trip supervised by the Taliban. He just submitted my name. So I came to the consulate to pick up my visa, which I had been told I had got, and they suddenly just stared because they realised I was a woman and they, this was a terrible mistake. They had not recognised my name as a woman's name. And so they said, no, 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 we can't possibly do this. Um, you, no, no, you, you can't come in. So in the end, I had to send my uh, male photographer but then that was before they lost Kabul. Now, after they lost Kabul, they suddenly were in a position of 
greater weakness and understood that they had to change their behaviour towards the outside world, I suppose. And that's when they let a group of us into Kandahar and started telling us that Osama bin Laden wasn't there anymore, that that they had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda anymore. And, you know, they wanted to resolve everything peacefully. And that was really when you started to see their messaging change. Part of the Doha process was supposed to force the Taliban to completely sever their links with Al-Qaeda. But Mm. how much pressure do we think there'll still be from extremist elements on the Taliban to make their, their new government more radical? There are a couple of things at play here. When the Taliban welcomed al-Qaeda in before, they were heavily indebted to Osama bin Laden because he had sponsored them and they needed him and his fighters on the ground to fight the Northern Alliance. Because, of course, the Taliban never controlled the whole of Afghanistan all that time they were in power. The question is, do they need them anymore? I don't think they do in the way that they did then. But they haven't broken their links with these people. I think it would be a dangerous path for the Taliban to go down again, for ordinary Afghans to feel that they were actually occupied all over again. You know, the Taliban saying that they've got rid of the Americans, they've got rid of foreign forces. To then bring in foreign fighters from an organisation like al-Qaeda that is not Afghan, um, you know, that risks turning the Afghan people against you. And, and this is really what they need to do right now in, uh, in their own minds, is to convince the Afghan people that they are their legitimate government and that they can govern for all Afghans. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times diplomatic correspondent, Catherine Philp. You can read more of Catherine's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Chris Wade, and the executive producer is James Shield. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us an email to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. Tomorrow, Emily Sargent is back with episode four of our Thinking Straight mini-series. If you've missed the previous episodes, do go back and have a listen. You can find them all on the Reporter podcast feed. See you again soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 